Welcome to the Evidence-Based Education Podcast and this episode on how teachers can maximise the opportunity for their students to learn. This episode is part of a series focused on the dimensions and elements of the model for great teaching, which was published in the Great Teaching Toolkit Evidence Review. If you haven't come across that evidence review, you can download a copy for free at greatteaching.com. If you've seen the evidence review, then you will already know that it summarises the best available evidence on the things teachers know and do that has the biggest impact on student learning. The output of this summary of the evidence takes the form of this model for great teaching. The model is organised into four dimensions and 17 elements. It can be thought of as a, a curriculum for teacher learning, the best bets for teachers to focus on to keep getting better. In each episode of this podcast series, we are exploring a specific dimension or element, and in this episode, uh, we're dedicating it to the components of classroom management associated with behaviour. We're going to hear from leading experts on the subject to really get us thinking about some of the factors at play and how we can influence desirable behaviour. To start us off, we're going to hear from our Director of Research and Development, Professor Rob Coe, to expand on the importance of classroom management in optimising student learning. Rob, why is classroom management such a key component of great teaching and an enabler for student learning? Well, this is a, a really obvious thing, isn't it? You ask any teacher, you ask actually uh, students as well, you know, what is it? What does it mean to be a great teacher? And, and classroom management will come out. That's one of the things they'll say. If you sit in a lesson and watch as an observer, again, it's one of the things that's very obvious. You can see it and you um, you certainly see if it's not going well and it's very obvious if it's not going well how that's a barrier to learning it's a barrier to learning because they're not actually focused their attention is is distracted by other things they're not spending the time on the learning activities uh, but also things like um, teachers who want and, and should want to have a, a challenging curriculum and activities that are hard that makes a the students, um, you know, hard thinking, that's our dimension four in the framework. So uh, you can't really do that if you haven't got a level of behaviour management in place where, um, you know, it's much easier to manage a behaviour, uh, manage behaviour with with easy tasks that, that kids will find fun, but that isn't necessarily the way to optimise learning. So classroom management, I think, is it, it's sort of duh, really obvious um, but of course you know we're interested in what the research says and the evidence and so we couldn't really say oh well duh, it's obvious we had to say why is it in there and actually pretty much every study that's tried to look at what effective teachers do uh, effective def define in terms of where students learn the most in those classrooms then they find something that we've put under the heading of classroom management in there so it, I'd say it's probably the the, the most um, consistently found and perhaps the strongest effects of anything that's observable in right. classrooms. This is the thing that predicts best. If you if you're thinking about observing, you know, what can I see in a classroom that's going to predict learning? It it's about the behaviour and the management of that behaviour by the teacher. Um, and as I say, for kind of obvious reasons, I suppose if it's not um is not in place it, then don't be surprised if if the learning is not as much and, and not as effective um i think it's partly also comes out of the research because it's much easier to observe 
Mm. So, you know, you tend to see strong correlations with things when when both ends of the correlation are easy to measure, if you like. So that is a feature of classroom management that observers can see it more readily, say, mm. than they can make judgments about the um, the quality of questioning or those kinds of things, let's say, or um, the interactions between learners and uh, learners and teacher. So bad behaviour or disruption, easy to observe, which is, you know, nice and easy. What's no. not easy to observe necessarily, I don't know, you tell me, is what the teacher does to prevent all of those things happening, which I think is really interesting. So you might observe a lesson and go, oh, great. Well, the kids were well behaved. That's that's lucky or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But actually, it's the little things that the teacher's doing to prevent that from happening. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the challenges with observation, which is that how good you look to an observer um, doesn't just depend on how skilled you are as a teacher. It depends on which kids you've got in front of you. Yeah. Um, so the same teacher with a, a really biddable class who are um, kind of used to routines and, and in a school where there's good support for um, behaviour management um, will look much more impressive than that very same teacher teaching a class that is, um, you know, uh, less used to that kind of discipline or in a school where there isn't the same support for it or whatever. Mm. Um, or where they just haven't established themselves. You know, this is a, a recognised phenomenon among teachers. You go to a new school and you have all these problems again of, of behaviour that you haven't had for a long time because you've been well established in one school and then and suddenly you're not, you're a new face. Mm. Um, so this isn't just about what the teacher does, it's about a whole lot of other things as well. And so that makes it hard to judge and perhaps unfair to judge sometimes if we're talking about um, things that the teacher's doing or that the teacher can learn to do better. It's it's um, it's not always a, a solid indicator. But th this this time on task thing comes out again. This is one of them. The um, the earliest established going right back to the the observation uh, so-called process product research in the 1960s. Uh, so this is people like Rosenshine, actually, you know, in his heyday, this was when he was mm -hmm. doing the work that he suddenly became famous for in uh, 2012 or whatever it was. Uh, and this was about observing things in classrooms and trying to match up that with outcomes. And this time on task uh, variable was one that came out of that very early and, and very consistently predicted learning and continues to do. And it's one of the strongest predictors. And again, it's really obvious. It's the amount of time that students spend apparently on task because you can't always tell what's going on in their heads but yeah you can make a judgment that they look as though they're doing the thing that the teacher wants them to do and um, the more time they spend doing that the more they seem to learn you know well who knew yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it actually when again when you look at classrooms what you see uh, typical classrooms is that actually quite a lot of time gets lost in various ways I mean you could say wasted um, it gets lost in disruption. That's one mm -hmm. thing. Quite low-level disruption often is quite common in many classrooms, and it it just soaks up a bit of time here and there and distracts people. Mm -hmm. um, transitions between activities is another thing where you're doing one thing and you need to uh, hand out some resources or collect in something, or uh, students have to move around the room or all those kinds of things. So you lose a little bit of time there start and end of lessons again you know how quickly do you get going mm. um, even just the sort of simple thing of a teacher wanting 
let's say students are working individually and maybe there's a little bit of chat going on and the teacher wants them all to to focus on them and, and you know look at me and listen put your pens down type thing and um, in some classrooms that takes you know ju just one or two seconds literally in other classrooms it can take 30 seconds before the teachers really got everyone's attention and even yeah. even then maybe hasn't actually doesn't ever quite manage it because you know there's still one or two kids who are not really yeah. paying attention um, so those kinds of things I think are reasonably common um, and they make a difference because the, the time then isn't on target the attention of the the yeah. learners is not on the learning activity uh, but your point about the, you know, sometimes you can't see this is also a really good one. And again, I think we we tried to capture that in the the third element in this in this dimension, which is about the the preventing disruption as much as dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And it is about dealing with it. Disruption arises even in the best classrooms, in the best schools with the best students. You do occasionally get disruptive incidents, um, and in some classrooms they're quite frequent and teachers have to be able to deal with them, but they deal with it by um, uh, uh, playing it down, deflating, not not um, aggravating mm -hmm. the, the kind of tension and the conflict in that environment, but, um, you know, mollifying it. And, um, and actually what the best teachers do is they stop it happening in the first place and they sort of have eyes in the back of their head. They can see what's going on in the room. They know where trouble's just about to break out. And it's sort of, you know, they raise an eyebrow or just make eye contacts with a youngster or even just move around the room. They, they just kind of move towards where they can see the, the slight lack of attention beginning to bubble up. Yeah. And, and their physical presence being just a little bit nearer has that impact. And the, the teacher themselves may not even know they're doing that. Yeah. It might be a completely instinctive thing that they've sort of learned to do. But it is also a thing that you can you can learn to do. You can teach, yeah. you know, certainly for new teachers. It's not obvious that that's the thing you can do. And so but they can be taught to do this. And there's some great I mean, the um, Paul Bambrick Santoyo stuff on um, Get Better Faster, I think is a book. Mm -hmm. I can't remember something like that. Um, I know Adam Box has done some great videos on this as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think uh, a lot of people assume, certainly when I was learning to be a teacher, it was you sort of pick this up. You know, no one was going to teach you explicitly these techniques or no one taught me anyway. And I don't think that was a common thing. But now I think it's much more common for for new teachers to be explicitly taught some of these techniques about where you stand and how you um how you signal that you know what's going on and how you reinforce positive behavior as well rather than drawing attention to negative and yeah. all of these kind of things they, they may be obvious to some teachers but i think most teachers they're not completely obvious to and certainly not fully formed and um and you know they are all supported by research research i don't think gives us very clear steers about which kinds of techniques to use so but it does say that that this really matters the, the more you get students to be uh, doing what you want them to do effectively yeah spending time thinking about the things you want them to think about and the less effortful that is you know so these routines and um procedures that that teachers use and often explicitly teach they're just ways of making the whole thing automatic and simple and and less effort so that it that that's, becomes the default 
OK, and I've just got a quick question, I think, before we wrap up. Um, to what extent or how important is the school's action policy culture yeah. around behaviour in all of this? Yeah, very, very important, I think, is the answer. Again, I don't think we have the best evidence available, but I think there's a lot of evidence about the, um, the, the school climate around order, safety and discipline. Those are the words that people tend to use. They're sort of grouped together. Um, and how that makes a difference, it makes a direct difference to how much learning happens in those classrooms. Um, so the school level measure of it has an impact on every classroom in that school, but it also makes a lot of difference to other really important things like teachers well-being, teachers um, intention to stay in that school. And that has indirect impact because, again, I think we know that, that, that too much turnover of teachers is really damaging actually for schools. It breaks the culture, um, it disrupts the, the learning activity. Um, it, it can also mean that the, um, the you know, you, the, in schools where you don't have this order and safety and discipline, the teachers that you tend to lose are the better ones. So that's it's not just that you've got turnover and it's sort of neutral, you're losing your best teachers because, mm -hmm. well, who wants to work in a school like that? And so if you're a good teacher, you're going to look around at the, the job pages and see what else is available. And of course, that's what people do. And that's uh, a particular challenge in schools that serve more disadvantaged communities because they tend to be the ones where these these problems are seen more acutely, the order of safety and discipline issues. And so it's more even more important that they have good policies and strategies and, and actual practice that, that backs yeah. that up. Uh, because they're the ones, in a sense, where we need the best teachers, where the best teaching makes the most difference and um, anything that, that drives good teachers away from those high challenge schools is bad for the whole system, I think. Yeah. OK, thank you very much, Rob. Great. Well, thank you. Managing student behaviour is a key part of maximising the opportunity to learn. And what we'll explore now are some thoughts and suggestions for how we can promote and enable behaviours that are conducive for learning. I'm going to share a small collection of clips taken from the Great Teaching Toolkit courses, Maximising Opportunity to Learn and the Behaviour and Culture Programme. We'll hear from Tom Bennett and David Didow, but first, here's Dr Alicia Hodkovich presenting the concept of helpful and unhelpful behaviour rather than good or bad behaviour. You talked about good behaviour. And I don't think about it as good or bad behaviour. I think about it as helpful and unhelpful behaviour. What's the goal that you're trying to get to? The behaviour that you're doing, is that going to help you reach that goal? Or is that going to stop you reaching that goal? And often when behaviour is motivated by fear, fear of failure, fear of what other people are going to think, fear that I can't do it, that's when kids get into these unhelpful behaviours, like distracting the rest of the class, not doing their homework, um, acting up, because maybe they're motivated by trying to avoid doing something that they don't want to do. And that's what I call an unhelpful behaviour, not bad behaviour, because it's easy to help change something that's unhelpful. Mm. If it's bad, it's attributed to you as a person. We, too often you're a bad person, you have bad yeah. behaviour, and it's hard to get out of that. If you're a bad person, you can't change. But when yeah. we link it to your behaviour and whether you're helping to reach a goal or not, then we can easily find solutions to that. One of the things I take from that clip is that helping students to feel a sense of competence in a task or activity 
can help to avoid unhelpful behaviour. How we scaffold a task to make it accessible is important here. Social norms are another really interesting aspect and influencer when it comes to helpful and unhelpful behaviours. Social norms inform what people do, how they act. These norms provide an indicator of what is and is not acceptable. Norms are set by expectations and rules. These consistently applied rules and expectations are why we know to be quiet in a library and why it's okay to be vocal at a football match, for example. In this next clip, David Didow uses a useful phrase to help remember the importance of setting social norms in the classroom and being consistent with them. Um, what, we, what we see around us, we, we think of as normal. So anything that we can describe is, is what um, a social psychologist would call a descriptive norm. So we describe things, you know, like everybody's sitting quietly and getting on with their work or everybody's throwing paper airplanes around. So we describe that, becomes, it becomes normal for us because we're able to put into words what it is that we're seeing. We, we also then experience um, that the, the norms we describe become injunctive norms or almost um, expectations of what we should do, what we should approve of. So what we see around us, we, there's also a pressure on us to approve of and find that uh, appropriate. So a, a useful a proxy or a useful way to put this into um, short, pithy sentence for teachers is what you permit, you promote. Um, because you, obviously you're, you, you, no teacher is thinking, oh God, how, how do I get kids to speak over me when I'm giving instructions? But if you allow it, they'll see that it's happening. And because they're seeing it's happening, they'll think that it's, that it's something that is at least tacitly approved of by, by you, the teacher, but also approved of by their peers in the classroom. And so they're more likely to do it because it's what they see around them. What you permit, you promote. I really like that phrase. Similar to social norms are routines. A routine being a sequence of behaviour that you need to use frequently in order to achieve a goal. And routines are one of the ways great teachers maximise the amount of time students spend learning. They enable students to predict events, helping to minimise disruptive behaviour. Let's take a listen now to my colleague Stuart asking Tom Bennett how teachers explicitly teach routines. Um, so we know that great teachers um, use routines, but they also explicitly teach routines. And I wonder if you could just um, talk a little bit now about um, how they do that and, and specifically how they do that to maximise um, students' opportunity to learn. Sure. And I often call routines the, the, the building blocks of the classroom, uh, of the classroom culture, because, I mean, culture in a classroom is quite a big nebulous term. You know, what do you want them to actually do? Well, that's behaviour. So... What kind of behaviour do you want them to perform? Well, behaviour that you want them to perform on a more or less everyday basis without any confrontation or even much discussion. Any behaviour which is pretty much your daily non-negotiable can be systematised, can be taught to them and can be made into a routine. And that's what a routine is, a behaviour which is performed um, almost instinctively, almost unconsciously, without thinking about it too much. You just know this is what we should be doing. That's what makes... A routine and it's normally the types of behavior that you must have in a classroom mm -hmm. in order for it to function as a classroom 
So for example, you might have a routine of how the children come in or leave the classroom. Or you may have a routine for how they transition between activities or how they ask or answer a question or how they go to a bath, how they go to the, a bathroom or the toilet, <laughs> um, depending if your school is a bathroom or not. Um, but also, I mean, there can be lots of little tiny micro routines that perhaps we haven't considered before. Like, what do you do when you're stuck? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you're upset? What do you do if someone's bullying you? You know, what's, this, what's the routine? And not just the behavior, but what's the routine? A behavior is something that you do in that moment. A routine is something that you do habitually that you do over and over and over again and this is why it's so important that teachers teach routines number one it's to make the behavior explicit i mean remember the children aren't born knowing how to behave in your classroom yeah. most behavior that we exhibit in, in a society or any community is is taught or, or learned now you can do this by osmosis and experience I can do it explicitly. Well, I'm going to suggest from a teacher's point of view, teaching something explicitly is something that we're very good at and we know how to do. So you teach the routine. You ask yourself, what routine do I need them to do? And then you tell them really clearly what that routine is. And crucially, in order for them to get good at it, you make them practice that routine. And I think this is a step that many teachers forget or they neglect to some extent. If you want children to um, come into the classroom more efficiently, and begin the lessons more efficiently. You first of all, you have to tell them what it is. Secondly, inject some pedagogy into that. You know, get them to tell you what you've just said, and maybe quiz them on it, and so on. And then crucially, make them practice it. And this is one of the, one of the most robust findings we have in cognitive psychology about learning. If you want somebody to remember something, they've got to practice it because practicing something is a way of thinking about it repeatedly, which as we all know, is how we create memory, the residue of thought. So that applies to behavioral learning as well. And the beauty of thinking about things in terms of routines is that routines can vary tremendously from classroom to classroom, from group to group. So you might have one class that you want to line up inside your classroom. That might be the way you want them to systematically enter the classroom. So you have to line up. Okay, teach them how to do that. Teach them what, what the line looks like. Is it single file? Is it, um, is it two abreast? Can they talk? Can they speak quietly? Or is it perfect silence? Or do you want them singing a song? Are they supposed to be getting their uniform ready or not? Getting their planner out or not? Are they supposed to be getting into a certain mindset? Are they supposed to be um, thinking about um, what their starter activity is going to be? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. And that's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter to me. Or maybe you just want the children to come straight into the classroom and get started with work. Or maybe somebody has to come in and hand the work out, or maybe somebody is the equipment monitor or whatever. The point mm-hmm. is this, is you work out the routines that you need for your environment in order for your children to flourish as humans and as, uh, and as learners. I find that really interesting. As a coach of an under-10s football team in my spare time, there's been one particular routine or structure that's helped me to maximise our team's training time. Every Saturday at training, Every one of the nine um, and ten-year-olds that I have for an hour and a half wants to play a match. As a coach, I know that match experience is important, but matches alone don't necessarily help to develop specific constituent skills and behaviours that are needed in a match. So we need to break things down and practice specific things like using space, which is far less exciting to a ten-year-old. But all through training, I'd be asked are we going to play a match or when are we going to play a match? And these persistent questions would interrupt my explanations of other things. So we established a routine and an expectation 
that we start every training session with a small 10 minute match and end the session with a 15 minute match. They know this will happen every week because it's applied consistently as a routine and I'm no longer plagued with questions about a match during my training drills. And this leads us on to our final clip about managing potentially disruptive behaviour. Here Tom Bennett talks about the use of scripts. Oh, scripting is one of the most useful things I think that teachers can do in the classroom or probably more appositely before they go in the classroom. Because what we frequently find is that when we make decisions in the moment, when we're dealing with something which is particularly uh, the often peculiarly high stress environment in our classroom or our students being rude or making us feel uh, antagonized or upset or stressed in some way, particularly in those types of environments, we know that all of our very human cognitive biases um, loom large upon our decision-making process. And we know we tend to make very poor decisions when we're under stress and under pressure, because cognitively speaking, we start to fall victim to, to, to things like availability heuristics and stuff like that and other biases whereby we, we become very single-minded and very dogged and we, we stop looking at alternatives and we just start thinking, what do I need to do right now? Mm. And it can become quite a fight or flight response. If you walk into a classroom and you're in the middle of teaching something complicated and they're late, rude and loud, it's very easy to make a bad decision at that moment and shout at them or, or say the wrong thing or try to be sarcastic or whatever. One of the most effective things we can do as teachers is to prepare in advance of misbehavior what we're going to do when we encounter misbehavior. Um, and I remember many years ago, I used to uh, write an, an advice column for the TES in the UK, um, which was answering behavior dilemmas from people online. So I was kind of an agony uncle. And people would send in the same questions over and over and over and over again. And it made me realize very quickly that I mean, most teachers tend to encounter the same dilemmas over and over and over again. And when you think about perhaps your own classroom practice, the things that tend to go wrong, behaviorally speaking, it tends to be the same 10 or 20 things. Hmm. You know, people will be late and they'll forget their equipment or they'll be rude or maybe there's a fight or whatever. But there's not an infinite set of, yeah. of different circumstances. I mean, they can all be categorized. You will get exceptional things which happen from time to time. But by and large, most of the things you you're going to encounter are reasonably predictable. It's mm. just you don't know when they're going to occur. So it makes sense that what you should be doing is thinking in advance of them happening, what will I do? Yeah. And there are two levels of script that you can try to achieve. You can sit there and think, right, if somebody's late, what will I actually do? And that's one level of script. You script your own behavior. It's the only, it's the only thing you can control. You can't control them, but you can control yourself. And you practice it and you think about it and you, t and you maybe talk about it with a peer and maybe even you physically practice it in terms of a role play so you get used to how it feels. Which means that when the misbehavior occurs in your classroom, you've then got something in your repertoire in the back of your mind, which makes it more likely that you can just default to that. Oh, I remember I said I was going to do this and then you do it. And the second type of script we can approach here is the verbal script. And I think this is often just as useful. Ask yourself in advance of the situation, what will I say? What words will I use? Very frequently teachers get quite tongue-tied or caught up in the moment thinking, what's the most effective thing for me to say just now? Even in simple circumstances like asking a student to walk in the right-hand side or the left-hand side of the corridor, they think, oh, how should I phrase it? How should I put it? So it doesn't yeah. make me sound stupid or authoritarian or weak or, or whatever. And a lot of teachers struggle with that. And I think it's something that perhaps a lot of teacher training doesn't prepare them for. How do you literally say the things, the instructions you want to give 
to a student in different circumstances. Mm. And so you can literally script your verbal scripts as well, which saves you getting caught up in the, 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 the traps. Like, for example, when somebody comes in late to a lesson, I've seen lots of teachers try to come up with something funny or witty or sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. And then it backfires spectacularly yeah. when the kid doesn't find you funny. Yeah. Or they don't get it or they don't think you're being serious or whatever. Yeah. And you think, oh, should I just told to sit down? And then, in a, sorry. In a, well, in a, you know, in a classroom, there's just, there are so many things that are competing for your attention. Mm. And, 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 you know, at that point, in, you know, the, the number of things that you're trying to mm. process you know, at once to do with that individual and their behavior and your response. And then the thing that you you were trying to yeah. teach and then what the rest of the class is doing. And now, you know, the response of the class to you responding to the, yeah. you know, that, you know, that's a situation that's, you know, going to be way too much, particularly if you're, you know, um, uh, you know, a teacher early on in your career and don't have those things well practiced and automatized as part of your, you know, your kind of uh, your, your own, you know, toolbox of, of things for respond. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I hope it's given you some food for thought. Classroom management and culture is multifaceted. And in this podcast, we've touched on just a few factors and ideas. If you're interested in learning more, then why not check out the courses in our Great Teaching Toolkit? For middle and senior leaders, we have the Behaviour and Culture Programme. And for classroom teachers, a course called Maximising Opportunity to Learn. You can find out more information on the Evidence-Based Education website or by searching for the Great Teaching Toolkit. <laughs>